sounded like some jazz or some R&B or something, man. I love it. Thank you. Put the Psalter to some R&B. Only here at Redeemer Church. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Jonah. We are beginning a new sermon series today on the book of Jonah that we've entitled Waves of Mercy, Depths of Grace. And today we're just going to have an overview of the book and then next week we'll look at chapter 1 and then focus on 2 and 3 and 4 in the coming weeks. But for this overview, let me just say that the book of Jonah is a great piece of literature. It has great structure and symmetry. Chapter 1 and chapter 3 both begin with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. Chapter 2 and chapter 4 both begin with Jonah praying to God. So there's great structure and symmetry. There are great plays on words that we'll see as we go through. There are various rhetorical devices. I would just invite you to read this book this week. If you love great literature, you will love this book. And if you don't love great literature, hey, it's only two pages, okay? I read it this week. I was consistent between six or seven minutes when I would read it, and so I would love for you to read it this week. And let me give you a little introduction to it. I want to read the first four verses and then pray for us, and we will dig in and look at the book as a whole as an introduction today. So if you would, hear God's word from Jonah chapter 1. I'll read the first four verses and pray for us as we dig in. Hear now God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord." But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us so clearly. Thank you for just your honesty as we see Jonah's heart and his rebellion. And as we see him, I pray that you would help us to see sin and rebellion in our own hearts. But even more than that, I pray that you would help us to see your great love and mercy and faithfulness and steadfastness to a people who are often unfaithful, disobedient. That you and your grace continue to use us and accomplish your purposes in and through us. Help us to see your grace and your mercy. Father, I confess, no pastor can show that to a group of people. That is something only you can reveal By your spirit. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. You are welcome in this place. We pray that you would come and use the preaching of the word in order to accomplish your purposes and your people. And I ask that you'd even be willing to use the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of the things I love about the book of Jonah is it takes these great theological truths that we carry around in our heads and it shows us what they look like as they are played out in the real world in a concrete way. You want a practical book? You want a book that meets you where you are? Read the book of Jonah this week. We see these great theological truths played out in real life. And a couple of those that I hope you'll see today is that theological concept of sin... And that great theological concept of grace. 
We hear about those in church. We memorize things about them. If you know your catechism, you know sin. Maybe you can recite the catechism and you know that sin is what? It's any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, right? We've got that memorized in our head. But what does that look like in real life? How does that play out? And boy, we see lots of pictures of it here in Jonah. Just the first one right here in verse 3. Do you see practically what that looks like? Sin is living life like there is no God or like you are not in the presence of God. You see it in verse 3 there that Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And it says it again at the end of verse 3 that he goes to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. I wonder, do you live all of life like you are in the presence of God Or do you live life like you can live apart from him? Like your life is somehow divorced from God in his presence? Like you're not dependent on him for your next breath, for your next heartbeat, that you're not dependent on him for all things? In the 1600s, there was a a book uh, that was written, or there was a monk by the name of Brother Lawrence, and he had a lot of sayings that someone wrote down after his death, and and they compiled them in a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. If we had a resource room, this could be something we would have in there, and you could go by and see and order for yourself, but I recommend this book, The Practice of the Presence of God. And what Brother Lawrence learned in this monastery as a monk is that he could experience the presence of God just as much when he was in the kitchen washing dishes as he could experience the presence of God when he was in the chapel praying. And he had had this concept that when he's in church and he's praying, then he's in God's presence, but somehow when he was in the kitchen washing dishes that he was not. And he just learned that that was not true, and he began to live all of life as if he was in the presence of God. And it totally changes his life, changes the people who are around him, who come into contact with him. The practice of the presence of God, Brother Lawrence. We've already said this morning, we recited Romans 3.23, and we've said, hey, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so we all, in some sense, live life like God is not there, like we can do things independent from him, like we don't acknowledge his presence in our lives. We all do that in different ways. Do you see how you do that? Are you aware of how you flee from the presence of the Lord? I suppose it looks different for different people, and even for the same person, it's going to look different at different times. You see some pictures of it here in the text. You see it in Jonah in his rebelliousness, right? God says to go this way, and so Jonah goes that way. Sometimes that's what fleeing the presence of the Lord looks like, just blatant disobedience going in the opposite direction that God says to go. Sometimes it's not something so much outward, but it's inward. God says that the wickedness or the evil of the Ninevites have come up to him. Sometimes it's just wickedness in our hearts, selfish desires. It's not that we're going someplace or going the opposite direction, but just inside of us. We hate. We want what we want. We don't care. We don't love God with all our hearts, and we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. Sometimes The sin is just something inside of us. It can be rebelliousness. It can be wickedness. 
But you don't have to be rebellious or, or wicked in order to flee the presence of God. I mean, let's just be honest. Let's name some things. Oh, let's not. How about busyness? Sometimes just in our busyness, we get so focused on all the things that we have to do, all the demands of life, that we begin to live like God's not there. We just forget about it. We don't pray. We don't read his word. How long can you go without talking to God or reading his word, without hearing from him in his word or, or speaking to him in prayer? Sometimes our busyness is a way that we flee the presence of the Lord. We just get distracted and busy with other things. We're so broken and messed up. Let's just be honest. Even in the church, we can avoid God and flee his presence with our religiousness. Sometimes we can get busy at church and we can get busy doing good things like reading his word, but not really meet with God when we read his word. We can still continue to, to serve and to do good things, yet not as in the presence of God, but for ourselves, for our own glory, focused on the people we're ministering to. Do you see some ways you flee the presence of God? We all try to free, flee from God's presence at one time or another. But one thing we learned in the kids' sermon that we see in the text is this. You cannot outrun God. In verse 4 of the text, we see that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and this storm comes. In verse 17, at the end of this chapter, he sends a great fish to swallow Jonah. In chapter 3, he sends the prophet Jonah to the Ninevites. We'll see in chapter 4 that God sends or appoints a plant, and then a worm, and then a wind. That God continues to move towards his people. All of those things we're going to see in the text. And as you read it this week, look for this. That all those things that God sends are very practical, concrete pictures of God's grace. And his mercy. That he continues to move towards broken and messed up and rebellious people who live like he's not there. That in his faithfulness and in his steadfast love, he continues to move toward us. But what do we do? Oh, we see the storm. We see the plant. We see it wither away. We feel it when we get swallowed by a big fish, but we don't recognize it as the grace of God in our lives calling us back. And we get angry. Stay tuned for chapter 4. We'll see that in Jonah today as well. But all these things are practical pictures of God's grace, but we often miss them in real life. I love the ironies that I see here in this. As we talk about knowing great theological truths, but missing them in, in real life, look at what Jonah says to these sailors in verses 8 and 9. We'll look at this more in depth next week. But they come to him and say, listen, what have you done? You've got us in trouble. We're all gonna, this ship's going to break up and we're going to drown because of you running away from God. So in verse 8, then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Look at his answer in verse 9. And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Excellent answer. A plus on the test. Great theological truth. I serve the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. 
disconnect with reality. Let me ask you this question. Okay. If you serve the God who inhabits heaven, he's the Lord God of heaven, and he made the earth and he made the sea, um, how are you going to run away from him? Where are you going to run? He, he, he made the earth. He knows every square inch of it. He made the sea. He knows and controls all things in the sea. How are you going to run from him? Where are you going to go? Ah, we all live life divorced from the great theological truths that we know in our heads. So many times our theology is better than our reality. But Jonah teaches us. That even as we try to flee the presence of the Lord, we cannot outrun God. May he make our reality just as good as our theology. And may we learn to accurately live out in our lives what we believe in our heads. So as you go through chapter 1, you heard in the kids' sermon, Jonah is thrown overboard. The storm is calmed. This fish comes and eats him. And for three days, he's in the belly of the fish. Let's pick up reading Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Let's stop right there. Maybe you're here today and, and you feel the storm. Maybe you're here today and you feel what it's like to be swallowed by a great fish, to be in the dark, stinky place we said in the children's sermon where Jonah finds himself at this point. Maybe you face great distress in your life just as Jonah faced distress in his Maybe you're in distress at home, maybe in your marriage. Maybe you face distress in your parenting. Maybe you're in distress at work with your boss or with your coworkers or with your employees, those who report to you. Maybe you just have great distress in your heart and you're not really sure why. Notice, look at, don't miss verse 2. Because it shows us that God hears his children when they cry out to him in their distress. Look at verse 2. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, the place of the dead. Some of us feel like we're at that point. He says, I cried, and you heard my voice. Just, just stop and, 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 and take notice of that. God hears. God answers. In the midst of your distress, God hears his children who cry out to him. The question for us is this. Are you crying out to him in your distress? Is he the one that you run to? Or do you run other places to get relief from your distress? Notice also in the text that whatever it is you are facing, it is within God's control. 
God controls all things. There's nothing that you're facing that he does not control. You see it in verse 3, don't you? Jonah says, for you cast me into the deep. He's praying to God. He says, you cast me into the deep. You cast me into the heart of the sea. Well, I thought the pagan soldiers threw him into the sea. Jonah recognizes that even what these pagan sailors did is really the work of God. That God can work through those, even those who do not bend the knee to him. That there is nothing that is outside of his control. That yes, the wind, the waves, the fish belong to him. But even the people who don't serve him belong to him. And God controls all things. Whatever you are facing, it's not outside of God's control. And he hears And he answers his children when they cry out to him in their distress. Are you crying out to him or are you running other places? Now, if you're anything like me, I begin to think things like this. I begin to think, okay, well, you know, come on, Jonah called out to him and God heard Jonah. Jonah, you know, God listened and answered Jonah, but he's like a prophet or something. He's like this guy in the Bible. Would that really happen for me? Can I know that's going to happen for me? How can I know that, that, that this would be true of me as well? And that's a great question. Let's look at how it happened for Jonah so that we can see how it can happen for us as well. How can we get to that place where God hears and God answers me when I cry out in my distress? And you see it in verse 4 and verse 7. Let's just pick up in verse 4. Jonah says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Right? He's away from the presence of God. He feels like he is. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now he's in the belly of a fish. He can't see the temple. Is he just looking in that direction? He mentions the holy temple again in verse 7. Look what he's saying. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Twice he mentions this reference to the holy temple. What's going on here? Jonah is saying that he knew that he sinned. He's saying, I know that I rebelled against God. I know he said to go this way and I went that way. And I was sinking in the sea. I had gone under the water. I was going to die. I was going to drown. And if things couldn't get any worse, then I'm swallowed by a fish. He's saying, I know I was disobedient. I know I sinned. And then what does he do? He looks to the temple. He looked to the place where sacrifice had been made for his sin. He looked to the place where payment had been made for his sin. He looked to the place where there was cleansing from his sin. And when it says he looked there, he couldn't physically, he's in the belly of a fish, he's under the ocean. He's saying, I'm looking to that as as in I'm placing my hope in that. That the penalty for my sin has been paid. I'm looking to the place where cleansing from my sin is available because I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve this judgment. Oh, child of God. What is the way out of the anguish you feel? It is not looking to the temple. It's looking to Jesus. The one who said, tear down this temple and I will build it back in three days, referring to his own body. The one who made sacrifice for your sin. The one who made payment for your sin. 
The one who offers cleansing for your sin. Look to him and place your hope in him. You know, this whole story of Jonah points us to Jesus. Well, that's a neat trick of literature. You preachers always say it's about Jesus. Well, the day I don't say it's about Jesus, please take me out of this place up here. Because Jesus says that it's about Jesus. Jesus seems to think it's about him. Did you know that there was an occasion that people came to him and said, hey, show us that you're from God. Do some kind of sign to show us. And Jesus said, I'm not giving you any sign except the sign of Jonah. You can look, Matthew chapter 12 is where it is. So Jesus seemed to think that the story of Jonah is pointing us to him. How could that be true? I suppose both are sent by God on a mission to deliver people. Both came calling people to repent in order to escape God's judgment. Both sacrificed themselves to save others. Jonah says, throw me from the boat. Jesus, of course, on the cross. Both reappear alive after three days when you would think that they were dead and gone. And that's the connection that Jesus makes in Matthew 12, beginning in verse 40. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he says this. This is interesting. Follow me here. This is Jesus speaking. This is how Jesus applies the story to his hearers. We want to apply it the same way. Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that the Ninevites who were evil and bad, we'll look at that in coming weeks, that when they heard the preaching of Jonah, they actually repented. They turned from their evil and turned to God. And Jesus, what he actually says is that there's one greater than Jonah here now, that God in the flesh is here and people are not repenting. They're not turning from sin and turning to God. And then on the last judgment, the men of Nineveh will stand up and say, you heard just like we heard. You heard more than what we heard. And yet you did not repent. Listen to me. That is one of the main things this book is about as Jesus interprets it. That this book is about repentance. It is about turning from the ways you are running from God and looking to the place where sacrifice and payment and cleansing for sin is available. And I want you to look and see what happens when people repent and look to God. Look at Jonah Chapter 3, let's look at the first three verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Does anybody else find that funny? (laughs) I think that's hilarious. I guess he did go. He's already tried running in the wrong direction. And there's the wind and the storm and the fish. I guess he did go. The surprising thing is not that Jonah went. The surprising thing is that God came back to someone who's so disobedient and said, I still want to use you. You're still my spokesperson. You're still my ambassador. I still want you to go. 
Do you see when Jonah turns to God, God uses Jonah to accomplish his purposes. Oh, friend, maybe you're here today and you just think, listen, I've messed up too much. I missed the opportunity to be used of God. I've disobeyed him. I've gone in the wrong direction. No, no, a thousand times no. Listen to me. The book of Jonah teaches us that God can still accomplish his purposes through people who turn to him. It's not too late. Turn from other things you look to and are distracted by and trust in and turn back to him. He will use you in mighty ways. Jonah does go and declares that God's judgment is coming if the Ninevites do not repent. And they repent. They turn from their evil ways. And look at how God responds to people he turned to him. These are not special people. These are not prophets. This is how God responds to you when you turn to him. Jonah chapter 3 beginning in verse 10. When God saw what they did... How they turned from their evil way. God had compassion and relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Oh, friend. God is so gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. And abounding in loving kindness. And when people will repent from their sin... God will relent from sending his judgment. So I call you today. Turn from the other things that you trust in. You can't outrun God anyway. Those things that you look to don't control all things the way he does. I call you today to turn from those things. Even good things that you would turn from them. And look to God. The one who is gracious and compassionate, who provides payment for your sin. I want to close by looking at Jonah chapter 4, this last chapter. It's a surprise ending. It's a cliffhanger. We tend to end with Jonah getting spit out on the beach, and then he goes, and the Ninevites repent, and that's the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. God does some additional work in the life of Jonah, and I love this. I just see my own heart in this. There's such a surprise ending. There's a cliffhanger. It ends with a question. Look at Jonah chapter 4 with me. Remember the people of Nineveh have repented. God has forgiven them, and Jonah's mad about it. Jonah chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. You sort of expect God just to zap him right there, don't you? You little brat. Verse 4, but the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Evidently, he's hoping God's still going to destroy him, right? Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. Really? That makes you happy? Okay. 
But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, Jonah said. I am angry enough to die. Man, read this book. It's so, that's hilarious. He's arguing with God. Yes, I do have a right to be mad about this. But listen to how patient and compassionate God is. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Question mark. End of story. What happens next? It doesn't say. The next page is Micah. Just leaves us hanging. God just asks a question and it ends. We'll talk about that more when we look at Jonah chapter 4. But just know that, that God sent Jonah to preach. And when the people hear and repent and turn from evil to God, Jonah is displeased. He's so displeased he wants to die. And God sends this plant and he sends this worm and he, and he sends this wind. What's going on here? There's a whole lot. And we'll look at it when we focus on chapter 4 in a few weeks. But for now, let me just say this much. It seems pretty clear that there was something that Jonah was living for. And when that thing was taken away from him or denied of him, he no longer wanted to live. I think that much is pretty clear. We'll look at that more. But let me just show you how I was convicted of that this week. In hopes that the Lord would show you in your life how, how you, maybe you do the same thing as Jonah and as me. You see, I don't have suicidal thoughts like this talks about. I don't think about it. I usually get mad at people outside of me and want to kill somebody else rather than kill myself, right? That's kind of the way I work. I'm more extroverted. But sometimes as I do this job, I get frustrated and I don't want to do this job anymore. And when I ask myself why, as God asks good questions, why don't you want to do this job anymore? If I'm honest, it's because there's something I want that I'm not getting. Let's just call it success in ministry. According to my definition of success in ministry. And when I'm not getting that, I don't want to do this job anymore. I get frustrated, I get angry, I get defensive. And at that point, I'm exposed. Do you see it? I don't mean the outward anger or defensiveness. Of course, everybody can see that. But do you see my heart? Do you see what I'm living for? It's not Jesus. It's not for the glory of God. I'm living for what I want. I'm living for ministry success. And at that point, if we're honest, God becomes just a means to an end. God, if you can help me grow this church, 
God, if you can help me have this success in ministry as I define the term, then come on and join me. But if you can't help or are not going to help, can you just get out of the way? Because you're kind of disrupting things. We don't usually say it that crassly, but isn't that our attitude? When we go to God, aren't we just using him to get what we really want? Ugh, that's ugly. I'm embarrassed to stand here and tell you that. But it's the truth of me and of my heart. How about you? What is it that you don't want to do anymore because you're just not getting what you really want out of it? Maybe it's your marriage. You hadn't filed for divorce. You hadn't moved out. But you're not just not getting all you want out of it, so you're done. You're just kind of going through the motions. Maybe it's in your parenting. You don't know what to do with these kids. And so you give some general parameters, but for the most part, you've just given up. Maybe it's at work. You're so tired of your boss or your coworkers or these people that you're supposed to manage, that you're there from 9 to 5, but your heart's not in it. Just giving up. Maybe it's church. Maybe this place hasn't given everything that you thought it would give. Maybe the institutional church hasn't been all you thought it would be, and so you come when you feel like it, when it's convenient. And you go through the motions, and sometimes you even kind of like it a little bit. But you don't really want to do church anymore. And at that point, our hearts are exposed. And what we're really living for is exposed. Our own comfort. Our own convenience. Accumulating our own power. Gaining more prestige. Having the opinions of people that they would think well of me. That they would think my life is the same as what I post on social media for all to see. That I might have great esteem. What are you really living for? It's whatever that thing is that you think you have to have. And so I ask your heart and my heart the same question. Is Jesus enough? Or do you have to have Jesus and that other thing too in order to be happy? You may think to yourself, but it's a good thing. A good marriage is a good thing. Being a good parent's a good thing. Having a good witness is a good thing. I know. Success in ministry is a good thing. It's not better than Jesus. I have good news for you this morning. Jesus is enough. His grace is sufficient. Do you see it in the text? Do you see how God responds to this man who's disobedient? Who's, who has a horrible attitude? Who would rather see these people destroyed? Who cares more about a vine than he does about the people? Do you see how God responds to people who run and then repent? To people who obey for a little while and then pout? 
to people who declare God's goodness but then live like God is enough? Do you see how God responds to that? Oh, in his grace and his mercy, he sends the wind and he sends a storm and he sends a fish and he sends a vine and he sends a worm and he sends a wind and he asks good questions of your heart. In his grace, God keeps moving towards us. Listen to me. He is moving toward you today. That's why this book ends with a question. Then it was for Jonah. But today this question is for you and for me to answer. What are you living for? What are you giving yourself to? How will we respond? Let's pray and ask God to help us to respond. Let's pray. Oh God, we get so focused on other things, lesser things, even good things that pale in comparison to you. Oh Father, show us our sins. Show us how we look to other things in our distress. Show us how we long for other things more than we long for you. And then, Father, move toward us in your grace. Please keep moving toward us. Our only hope is in your faithfulness, not our faithfulness. Our only hope is by looking to the one who made payment for our sin, the only one who can cleanse from sin. Help us to see him. Help us to look to him. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.